do you love me? It sounds like a, a question that a, one spouse might ask to another when they're feeling particularly needy. <laughs> do you love me? Sounds like something a child might ask to mom or dad after they've been punished. Do you love me? Does it sound like a question that Jesus might ask? Well, in fact, it was a question that Jesus asked, not once, but three times. This morning, we're going to walk through a portion of Scripture that talks about one of Jesus' post-resurrection experiences. And typically what we do um, when we do this is we kind of read the entire Scripture and then we go back and break it down. We want to do it a little differently this morning. We actually want to walk through it together. And so the verses that we're going to look at are found in John's Gospel, the 21st chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn there. But don't close them because we're going to continue to walk through this passage. If you didn't bring your Bibles, that's okay. The words will be placed up here on the screen for you so you can follow along. You'll also note that in your grace notes that have been handed out to you this morning, there are not a lot of blanks to fill out on the front or front, first or second page, but I did leave room there for you to write notes as the Lord speaks to your heart what he's saying to you this morning to put in there. And then at the end, as we kind of tie things together and look at a few key uh, concepts in it, then there will be some blanks for that as well. But it's John's Gospel, the 21st chapter, and we're going to read this along together. So let's begin reading in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. He appeared to them by the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias, by the way, is also the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there was a city called Tiberias named after the Roman emperor Tiberius, and, and that's how it got its name there. So by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now one thing I, I really want you to notice here as we take a look at these portions of Scripture would be the first two people in the list of these disciples. Notice, Peter, go back to that first screen, the, the previous screen. Peter, and Thomas. What are significant about these two? First of all, Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times. Thomas was the one who doubted the resurrected Jesus. I don't think this is insignificant. As we take a look at this, the first two disciples who are listed are the two who had most recently failed or doubted, which I think should give us all hope. Because God can do wonderful things with failures. God can do wonderful things with doubters. Well, while they were waiting for Jesus to show up, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the rest of the disciples said, well, hey, we'll go with you. Some commentators say that uh, perhaps this shows a lack of faith on Peter's part. Maybe, but maybe not. Jesus had told them to go ahead of him to Galilee and to wait for him there. And so they were in Galilee. They were doing what Jesus had told them to do. 
But as they're sitting around, Peter's certainly the, the kind of the brash one. He's not letting any grass grow under his feet. He's getting a little antsy. And maybe there are other reasons. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe they feel like, well, we really don't know when Jesus is going to show up. Maybe we ought to earn a little money, go out and catch some fish. Well, whatever the reason, they go out and they fish. They fish all night, which is, which is kind of normal, fishing at night. They were out fishing at night. They fished all night, and they caught absolutely nothing. Now let's pick up in verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Okay, they've been fishing all night. They're about, oh, let's say 100 yards or so out in the water. And they see someone on shore who's, who's yelling at them. Now, they, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. It is why they didn't recognize, perhaps because it's a little too dark. Maybe there's fog out. Uh, it could be that just the distance... It could be that, uh, and it appears that maybe Jesus' countenance, Jesus' appearance was slightly different somehow after the resurrection than, than before. But for whatever reason, they didn't recognize it was Jesus. And he calls to them with the word friends. In the Greek, the word is actually, could actually be translated children, more of a term of endearment. And so he's calling to them. He asks them a question in a way that expects a no answer. In other words, you haven't caught any fish, have you? That would be kind of the way that the, the question could be worded. It expects a no answer. And their answer was indeed no. We hadn't caught anything. And then he tells them to throw it, the nets over the right side of the boat. Now, that didn't mean that they had it on the wrong side. It's left as opposed to right, okay? And so he told them to throw the net on the other side of the boat. And they did it. Now, why would they do such a thing? Well, it could be that they, as they saw this guy, maybe he had a better perspective on the water. Maybe he saw some stirring under there, that there may be a school of fish. Whatever their rationale, they throw the net out on the right side of the boat, and they begin to haul it in, and it is a massive haul of fish. They can barely pull it in. There are so many fish. And I want you to notice what happens next. Verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Have you ever had anything trigger a memory? You're going through um, just normal life, and something happens that triggers a memory. This, this happens a lot when I'm doing painting or any kind of woodwork or anything like that. I, I'll be in the midst of doing that, and I get these strong memories of when I did that with my dad. These memories just come flooding back, and it's almost as if you're there for a moment. Well, it looks like something like this happened. Here they are, they're out on the water, they're fishing, and this person tells them to throw their nets on the other side, and they end up with this huge, huge uh, catch of fish. And at that point, something tripped in John's mind. It was almost as if, I've been here before, 
This has happened before. There's something significant about this. And what he likely remembered was an incident that we can find recorded in the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel. Let's look at that event. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink." Here's another incident of a fruitless night spent fishing. Some of you fishermen know that feeling. Another night with no fish, and Jesus comes along, and because of his presence and obedience to his command, there is an abundant catch of fish. The incident basically is as Jesus is beginning his ministry, before he had called the disciples to follow him, Jesus comes along, finds two fishermen, Peter and likely John, because they were both, both fishermen, who had boats. He pushes out. He uses, he uses the, the water almost like an amphitheater so that people can, can be around him and out on the water as, a, as his sound carries a little bit. And he used it as a place to teach. And when he was done teaching, he had Peter push the boat out into deeper water, cast the net, pulled in a huge catch of fish, had to call in another boat in order to get it, probably John's boat, pulled it all together, and it tripped when this other incident happened that we just read in John 21. It triggered in John's mind, this has got to be Jesus. And so he turns to Peter, and he said, it's the Lord. Now, Peter is always one to shoot before he aims. Peter is always one to do something rash, to do something bold, to do something that no one else is going to do. He was a leader, but he didn't always think. And he wraps his cloak around him. He probably had like a loincloth on. Wraps his cloak around him, and he jumps into the water, and he kind of swims or wades. Don't know how deep the water was. Anyway, out ahead. He is rushing, rushing, rushing in order to get to Jesus. Now, the rest of the fishermen are going, ah, there he goes again. And they're, they're trying to struggle with a net. Try, they can't get it in the fish in the boat. So they're just trying to get the boat to shore with a net behind it to pull in as many fish as they possibly can. Let's look at this next verse, verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now I want to stop here and point something out that is not obvious from a casual reading. There are only two times in the Gospels, where this, these words for a, uh, a fire of burning coals or a charcoal fire, not charcoal like you could go down the <laughs> store and get, but a wood that they made into charcoal. There are only two times that a charcoal kind of fire are mentioned in the New Testament, and I think that this may be significant. So let's take just a moment to look at this, because the other event happened in the 18th chapter, 
in the 18th verse of John's Gospel. And this is, you can mark it or write it down, this is where Jesus had been arrested. He had been taken to be judged. Peter had followed into the court of the high priest, and he, in that cool night, had gathered around a charcoal fire to warm himself. And people began to recognize that he'd been with Jesus. And it was around that charcoal fire that Peter denied Jesus three times. Now, the resurrected Jesus has set up a special encounter that we'll find out in many ways was for Peter around another charcoal fire. We talked about memories. One of the strongest triggers for memories are smells. If you've ever walked into a kitchen, caught the smell of a turkey or, or pie, something like that, and, and immediately it, it takes you back. Here, there's a smell of burning charcoal. And you notice it doesn't say, when you know Peter was trying to get out ahead of the other disciples, it doesn't say that he got up to the shore and he immediately went and fell at Jesus' feet. You see no indication that Jesus got, that Peter got there. If you remember the encounter at the tomb, when they heard that Jesus was, had risen, that Peter and John took off to the tomb. But Peter, maybe a little younger, outran John. I mean, he was booking it to get to the tomb. But when he got to the tomb, it says he stopped and didn't go in. And John then caught up with him and blew by him and went in first. It just kind of gives you an indication that something stopped Peter. And maybe here, something stopped Peter. He gets to the shore. He's eager to see Jesus. Maybe it's the smell of the charcoal fire. But for some reason, he doesn't go up and fall at his feet. For some reason, he doesn't approach him. Now I want you to notice Jesus is there cooking fish. Where did he get the fish? Well, he's the Lord of creation. He can come up with fish without a problem. He had fish and some bread. Now again, he is there as the same Savior, the same Messiah that they'd been with for three years. How many times had they eaten fish and bread together? How many times had they shared that kind of meal? And of course, your memory may have triggered then to think about Jesus dividing the loaves and fishes among them. It was a normal, it was just, this is a normal meal. And so Jesus has got this meal prepared for them when they come up. But we don't see Peter going and falling at Jesus' feet. Instead, look at, look at, uh, look at verse 10. It says, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard the, and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them, and did the same with some of the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 153. What is the significance of the number 153? I don't have any idea. There probably isn't a significance to it. But that the fish were counted is a little fishy to me. You would think that had they got to shore and gone up and, and seen Jesus, 
that they'd have just all gathered around him and said, okay, Jesus, what do you got to say to us? Somebody stopped to count the fish. Now, I have not received a word from the Lord on this. This is pure speculation on my part, but I'm convinced it was Peter. Peter, who was so full of excitement to come into contact with the Lord, now gets there, smells the charcoal, the memories flood back that he denied Jesus three times after he said that he'd stay with him till death. And it may have been more than he could bear. And so instead of falling at the feet of Jesus, he spends his time counting the fish. Don't know it's true, but it surely could be. It's also worth noting the compassion that Jesus had on these men. They've been working all night. They were tired. Now they're here to struggle with a net full of 153 large fish. And Jesus had breakfast for them. We must never forget that Jesus said the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. Even as a resurrected Lord, He was still compassionately serving His children. Well, let's look at verse 15 and following. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, now they're all around, uh, they, they just finished We have no idea what conversations, if anything, was said between this. But he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. The word is grieved. Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. It's important that we grasp the significance of this event. Peter, like the other disciples, had rejoiced when he found out that Jesus had risen. But it was Peter who had pledged to stay with Jesus to the very end. It was Peter that said, everybody else may turn their back on you and run, but not me. If I have to die with you, I'm sticking with you. And yet Peter turned and ran and even went so far as denying Jesus. Look, well, look, let's look at that in Matthew 26. It says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter replied, listen to this, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. These other guys, I'm not so certain about them. But you can count on me. I'll tell you the truth. Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. After laying it on the line, Peter does exactly what he said he would never do.
he turned his back on Jesus. He denied that he even knew him, not once, not twice, but three times. And he wasn't the only one who knew it. Obviously, Jesus knew it. Certainly by now, all the other disciples knew it. Imagine the shame and the guilt that Peter had been carrying with him since that night. Even having seen the resurrected Jesus, that guilt, that shame would be hard to remove. I remember in high school we were taken to see the play Macbeth. And if you've ever read it or seen it, you know that Lady Macbeth, after, um, after you know, the, the murders that take place, you see, or, or in, the, in the play, you see her trying to wash the blood from her hands. It's not there, but she sees it. She knows it's there. There's the guilt, the remorse that she carried. There's guilt and remorse carried on behalf of Peter because of what was done. And now with the sun rising on a new day, and the smell of charcoal in the air, Jesus is now going to confront Peter in a way that is going to be both redemptive and painful. It's going to hurt. It had to be a hard time, but it was necessary. The question would have hit Peter like a ton of bricks. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these. Did you notice that he addresses Peter by his given name, Simon, and not by the name that Jesus gave him, Peter? Why is that? Well, he takes Peter back to the point before his calling. He takes Peter back to the man he was when Jesus originally called him, Simon, son of John. This was going to be a new beginning. Peter didn't know this. This was going to be a new beginning, a new and fresh call for Peter. Jesus not only asked if Peter loves him, but he asked, Do you love me more than these? Now, what does these mean? I mean, if he had been spending time counting 153 fish, Jesus could have said sarcastically, Peter, do you love me more than these? I mean, you came up here and then you went to counting fish. Do do, do you love me more than you love those fish? Or more generically, he may have been saying, do you love me more than this profession of fishing, more than these boats and, and these oars and these nets? Do you love me more than this life that you left behind? He could have been saying, uh, do, you, do you love me more than you love these fellow disciples of yours? I think it's probably more likely that what he's saying is a reflection back on what we read where Jesus said, even if everybody else turns their back on you, I'm not doing it. So he may well be saying, Peter, do you really love me more than these guys do? I mean, you said you did. Do you really love me more than these? Peter responds, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. I'm not sure whether it's a big deal or not. Some commentators think it is. Some think it isn't. But there's a change in the verb use in the word love here. When Jesus asked, do you love me? He uses a form of the verb agape, which many of you know is a, an unconditional kind of love, the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of love that we're called to have for one another. So Jesus says, do you agape me? 
When Peter replies, he uses a form of the verb phileo, which is a brotherly kind of love, uh, this camaraderie that we have with each other, the Christian communities, we love one another, that, that kind of brotherly love. And so Jesus says, do you agape me? And, and Peter answers, uh, yes, you know that I phileo you. Now, those aren't the exact words in the Greek. I'm trying to, to give you the impression of what's being said here. Now, some scholars say, well, it's not really a big deal. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably, and they are. But it could well be that what Peter is saying is, yes, Lord, you know I love you, but not in the same way that you're asking. I don't know. But this conversation cannot be easy. Not for Peter. Do you really love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What, what Jesus is doing is, is he's drilling down into Peter's heart. It is easy if your spouse asks you, do you love me? It's easy to say, oh, yes, dear, you know that I love you. But Jesus wanted to get deeper than a surface answer. He wanted to penetrate to the very depths of the heart and soul of this man, Peter, who had denied him three times. And so he asked again, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Now, I can't imagine how much this would have stung Peter. Jesus wasn't being cruel. He wasn't being harsh. He was not trying to injure Peter. He was, in fact, doing what he wants to do with each of us when we turn our backs on Jesus. He wants to restore, to renew, to begin again. That's what God wants to do with us. That's what Jesus wanted to do with Peter. Peter answers, and you can almost hear a sense of desperation in his voice. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. If this were a movie, and you've seen this wide view of Peter and Jesus and the other disciples around this fire, sun having come up, having just finished dinner, I think the director now would zero in so that you really don't even see the rest. All you see are Peter and Jesus. Because in his mind, Peter must have said, none of this other stuff matters. I've got to lay it on the line. I have got to open up and convince Jesus I love him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus responds to him, take care of my sheep. Now, Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus now asks three questions about love. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice what we read next. Peter was hurt. He was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Sometimes in order to get to the heart of a matter, it requires some pain. Soul searching is painful. Being honest with ourselves and being honest with God is painful. When Jesus was questioning Peter about his love, it was as if he was holding a mirror up to Peter's soul. So that Peter had to ask, do I truly love him? Do I love him? Do I? And when the drill had finally struck bottom... Peter cried out in exasperation 
and desperation. Jesus, you know everything. You know my heart. You know, you know I love you. And once again, Jesus responds, feed my sheep. Jesus was not simply asking Peter to evaluate his love. He was doing that. He was trying to get Peter to come to the point where he was fully, fully engaged in loving Jesus. He was was doing that, but he was also preparing Peter for what was ahead. Now, although these verses do not convince me that Peter was the first pope, as in Roman Catholic theology, it is certainly significant to note that Peter was a leader among the other 11 disciples and a leader among the early church. He was looked to for insight because he had been with Jesus. He had been one of the three that Jesus most engaged with during his ministry on earth. And so Peter was significant. He would be one of those primary stones laid on the foundation of Jesus Christ upon which the church would be built. So feeding sheep, leading and tending lambs, that's the role of a shepherd. Peter was to take this love that he had for Jesus and now pour it out on the body of Christ, the church, Jesus' lambs. To love Jesus is to care about what Jesus cares about. And the good shepherd cares about his sheep. This time of questioning by Jesus was also a recommissioning, a renewal, a restoration. He denied Jesus three times. Jesus had now restored him three times. And Peter's obedience to tend the sheep would not be based on his love for the sheep but on his love for Jesus. This is significant, folks. Jesus asked, do you love me? And out of that love for Christ comes a ministry to the sheep. This is not just for pastors and elders, folks. This is for all of us. Loving sheep can be hard to do. I I have a uh, a book on, on pastoring churches in my office. The title of it is, They Smell Like Sheep. They do. Sometimes I wonder, Jesus, why did you pick sheep? I mean, why didn't you? Dogs are loyal, smart. Why didn't you? Yeah, why didn't you pick a dog instead of instead of sheep? But Jesus picked sheep to talk about us, to compare us to, to sheep, sheep who are nearsighted, sheep who who don't even look up while they're eating can wander off a cliff, sheep who are who are stubborn and, and dense. Why in the world did Jesus pick sheep? And then I look in the mirror and I realize, oh, yeah, that's the reason. It's kind of like me. Sheep aren't always easy to love. Folks, you in the body of Christ, as you look around and you see people here, there are people that you dearly love and you have great affection for them and you hit it off and you, you enjoy But there's some sheep in here that you look at and you go, boy, that person is really hard to love. How am I going to love that person? How am I going to care about that person and express compassion towards that person? I really don't, <laughs> really don't connect with them. They're, they're different than me. I want to tell you the secret to loving the sheep is to love the shepherd. Because when we love the shepherd with all our heart, then we will love what he loves. And we will care about what he cares about. And Jesus cares for his sheep. Now before we close this, I want you to see another major item. Because Jesus is going to tell Peter exactly what's going to take place. 
Now this, remember, it's going to go all the way back to the time when Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I'll do it. Look at this. Verses 18 and following. I'll tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter boldly said, Jesus, I will die for you. And Jesus was now telling him, yes, Peter, you will. The stretching out of hands is an indication of crucifixion. And church history tells us that Peter was indeed crucified. But he felt so unworthy to be crucified in the way that his Lord was, that he had himself crucified upside down. Having encouraged Peter to express his full love and having told him that death awaited him, this is one of the most beautiful parts of what Jesus has to say. You see, when he came along and called Peter He did so with the words, follow me. And now, as he prepares to, as he tells Peter about what's going to happen, he also uses the words, follow me. This was Peter's recommissioning. It was a new morning and a fresh call. Peter was not washed up after all. He, yes, he had denied Jesus. He turned his back on Jesus. But Jesus was looking at him with a different set of eyes. He didn't see him as an utter failure. He saw him as an integral part of the building of the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot in these verses. We, we've just, we just dug just a little bit beneath the surface, but there's so much more that we could get out of this. And I encourage you to read it and pray and say, God, speak to my heart. Tell me what it is that you have to say to me. But I'd like to point out a few key insights this morning that may help us as we move forward. The first one is this. Love of Christ is the proper motivation for obedience and faithfulness. We are not trying to earn God's love. We're not trying to prove to God how good we are. We're not trying to impress other people so that they think that we're the king of the hill. Love of Christ is the motivation. It is Christ's love that compels us to serve Him and to do kingdom work. Second key insight, to love Jesus is to care about what He cares about. To love Jesus is to care about what He cares about. Jesus said, uh, God's Word says, you can't say that you love God and hate your brother. It doesn't fit. To love Jesus is to care about what He cares about. Third, sometimes the process of being refined by God is sometimes painful. But it is always for God's glory and our ultimate good. That had to be hard for Peter to sit there with all his buddies and to be nailed to the wall by Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't do it with harshness. He didn't do it with anger. He did it with compassion. But still, even gentle words can hurt. There's a refining that God may need to do in your life, a separation. And I can tell you, it may not be easy or painless. 
In fact, most often it hurts. But God is glorified when it happens. And you began to reflect His glory like precious silver or gold. Finally, your mistakes do not have to disqualify you for kingdom service. Remember, the list started with Peter, the Nair, Thomas, the Doubter. And yet God had plans for both of them, big plans for both of them. You have a lot of baggage. I don't even want to look into some of your baggage. And I don't want you looking into mine. We've all got things in our past that we have done, things that we have have said that we know just broke the heart of God. But when God looks at you through His grace, He does not see a failure. He sees His child. And He has big plans for you. Huge plans for you that will bring Him glory and will bring you joy. Let's pray.